This morning's sermon text will be coming from Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 35. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Holy Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the Lord, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, and you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marvel at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a son that is opposed, and a soul will pierce through your own soul also. And they, and the toss for, from many hearts may be revealed. When I was a kid, uh, Christmas time was uh, a time of, in some ways, torture, waiting for it. You couldn't wait for it to get here. Waiting for Christmas was just painful. It was, I remember Christmas Eve, we'd wake up usually around 3.30 and think it was time to open presents and wait, Mom and Dad, and no, you got to wait, you got to wait, you got to wait. And of course, when we had children, it was the same way, and they'd be waking up at, oh, dark 30, and uh, our eyes aren't open. We're asking them to wait a little bit longer. Um, I'm convinced, I'm not, this isn't factual, but I, I think the Advent calendar was actually invented by a tired parent who is tired of their kids saying, how many more days to Christmas? How many more days to Christmas? You know, here's a calendar. But we struggle waiting. Waiting is hard for us. What do you do when you wait? When you're anxious and you're waiting, do you tap your feet? Do you fidget? Do you pull out your smartphone? Do you go to Facebook? I mean, what do you do when you're struggling with waiting? It's hard to wait. And particularly, it's hard to wait when you're suffering and when life is difficult and hard. How do you wait then? You know, it discourages some people to know that the Christian faith really is a life of waiting. It's, it's waiting. That's what Advent's about. It's waiting for God to bring the fullness of everything that he has promised to us. There's this waiting and longing, and it's taking so long. Why isn't he answering and moving in the way that we desire him to? might interest you to know that, that the passage today helps us wait well. In fact, in this third song of Jesus, you know, if you're new here for the first time, we've been looking through the songs of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. 
These are Christmas songs, the first Christmas songs ever written. I, I don't know that these people sang them or if the church sang them later, but they're hit, written as hymns. And these hymns are explaining the mercy of God and bringing forth a child to save. And th these are just kind of exclamations about the greatness of God in saving us. Our third songwriter that we're looking at today is Simeon. Uh, Simeon was a man who was waiting. And of course, we see that he meets the first, these, you know, um, Joseph and Mary with the child Jesus. He meets them in the temple, and out of his joy comes the song that we'll be singing. So it really shows us, in a way, how to wait well. And what we see here is that to wait well, you do have to set your hope on the coming salvation. That's what we see, Simeon, just setting our hope that we're thinking, we're waiting well if we're thinking about this coming salvation, number one. Number two, we wait well when we can marvel over the child of salvation, that we begin to marvel and savor this child who has come. It's very difficult to wait if we're not marveling. And then thirdly, we wait well when we consider that salvation will come through a judgment. This is the darker side of Christmas. It's kind of the shadow, if you will, of Christmas that we're going to see. That waiting well comes when you consider that salvation will actually come through a judgment. So look with me at salvation, at um, waiting well coming through the idea of, of longing for that salvation, of setting your hope on it. Look with me at 25 to 26. He says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So people often wonder, you know, what was the spiritual climate around the time of Jesus? Were people looking for him? Was he a surprise visitor? In other words, what do we do? What was the climate? We don't know exactly. We know that the religion of Israel had become quite dead and there wasn't a, a strong, but there was an expectation. Uh, we see it at least in the life of Simeon. You see it, if you keep reading in chapter 2, you see it in the life of Anna. Uh, and, and that there were, there were people looking for this redemption of Israel. And we see that Simeon was. Now, Simeon's a common name. We don't know anything about him. He wasn't a priest, doesn't seem to be, didn't, not an official. And most of us think he's old. He's an older man. We, we don't, it doesn't say that. It ins, it's implied in the sense that he says, now I can depart in peace. But we don't know that he's older per se. Well, what, the only thing we know about him is that he's righteous and he's devout. Incidentally, there's some terms used of Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth, these other characters in the Christmas story. He's righteous and devout. But what's interesting is he's, he's filled with the Spirit. The Spirit's upon him. This is unique. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would only come upon priests and prophets and kings or upon others to do special works of God. And, and we see that Simeon has a special work to do in kind of announcing and receiving the coming of Jesus. God raised him up for that, gave him the Spirit. But notice how he waited. You know, I said to you that part of waiting well is setting your hope on it. Notice what his hope was set on. It says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What is that? What's waiting for the consolation of Israel? Well, I think he was waiting for the comfort from God. Uh, this phrase actually comes from uh, the book of Isaiah in chapter 40, verse 1. Let me read it for you. He says, 
Comfort, comfort my people. So God is instructing Isaiah the prophet to go. This is a, this is a turn into a, a beautiful part of the book of Isaiah. And he says, you go to the people and say, comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Declare to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. In other words, He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's not waiting. Simeon's not waiting for cultural reform. He's not waiting for, you know, kind of a, a, you know, kind of political reform getting better. He's not waiting for any sort of moral reform. He's waiting for the comfort that only can come from God. And that is that the warfare is ended. The enmity with God is now over. He, he's waiting for forgiveness of sins to come through a Messiah. He's waiting for God to do a work that we cannot do, but that God would come and <clears throat> remove the warfare to take us out of the wilderness. In a way, he's waiting for another exodus. You know, it's in bondage to sin. We're in bondage to this world, the brokenness of this world. And, and he's waiting, God, only you can come to bring the comfort I need. All the other comforts of this world, they're only temporal. They can't actually bring comfort to the ache of our soul in the world that we live in. And, but only you can, God. And so he's waiting. He's set his hope on God to bring this comfort. You know, Advent is a time of waiting, as he was waiting. And, and you know, for many of us, this time of Christmas can be fine. You know, we're celebrating. We have, you know, parties planned, good food to eat, presents to open. Uh, but for a lot of people, Christmas is a very hard time. It's very, very difficult. Their loneliness is made even more acute. It's difficult, reminders of pain and suffering. It's a very, very difficult time. And that really is a picture of the wilderness. And, and that is for all of us, because even though we're going to have some parties over the next couple of weeks, what happens towards the end of December? The tree's dead if you have a real tree. If you don't, remember, fake tree, fake Christmas. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> But if you have a real tree, it dies. And, and, and the, stuff, the stuff gets old and dusty. And all the celebrations, that we, it all comes down. And what do we do? We go into the gloom of January. We go back into the wilderness, back into the difficulties of our lives. All the problems that we were able to kind of push back during the Christmas season, they're all right at our doorstep. Next morning, the difficulties are there. We feel it, don't we? I and mean, we just sang a few weeks ago that song, Is He Worthy? This is where, you know, Jeremy will ask a question in song and we will answer. And it goes this way. He says, do you feel the world is broken? What do we say? We do. He says, do you feel the shadows deepen? We say, we do. Is all creation groaning? We say, it is. Then he asks, do you wish that you could see it all made new? What do we say? We do. We do. Don't we want to? And this is what we're waiting for. This is what he's waiting for, the, the consolation of Israel, the comfort to come from God, that he would make and begin to make all things new. This is what we're called to set our hope on. We're not setting our hope on the intended changes of the cultural movement. We're setting our hope on God. If God doesn't deliver, we have no hope. 
That's setting our hope on God. Now listen, there's a lot of things you can set your hope on in this world. A, a new job, a better relationship, greater health. You know, you can set your hope on a lot of things. And, and, and pursuing those things in life are not necessarily bad. They cannot provide for you what God does in Christ. You know, Carol and I, Carol made up for me, and, you know, one of our favorite things to go through is the Heidelberg Catechism. The first question, I know some of you are thinking, what in the world's Heidelberg Catechism? It was an old catechism written to help teach the church about their faith. And the very first question in instruction is this. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? Now, we have a lot of comforts in this life. Right? I mean, we do. We have family, we have friends, we have a lot of stuff that we enjoy. But, but notice what the question is. What is your only comfort in life and death? The answer is that, he says, that I am not my own. I belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things work together for my salvation. That's all things, good and bad. Because I belong to him, Christ, my, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So, so this is what it means to set your hope fully on God, that we look to God alone, that Christ alone is what we need in this life. And to set your hope fully, we need to set our hope early. Do you notice that all the people we've been talking about in this Christmas story, they've all been old, right? Zachariah, Elizabeth, probably in their 80s, Simeon, most likely old, Anna, following old. I, I, I love seeing the older saints, full of faith, full, with their hopes set, that they're not scared of death, that they're not scared of life. They've lived enough, enough life, God has revealed himself to be true, and they are fixed and firm. I love that. But you don't get there without setting your hope early. For those of you who are younger, your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, I mean, you're still advancing your careers, you're raising your families, you're entering marriage. It's so easy to be distracted from the things of life and forget this is where the hope is. It doesn't mean those things aren't good. They are good. They're gifts from God. But the greatest gift from God is, of course, what we're celebrating right now in Christ. Setting our hope fully, even in these younger years. That's what, that's what Peter says to a church, a church in the wilderness, a church suffering like us. You know, he says in 1 Peter, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. That, again, setting your hope fully on the grace that will come to us in Christ. Our lives make sense in light of that last day. You cannot make sense of life apart from what he will do on that final day when he reveals his grace in its fullness. That's what we're setting our hope on. And we can't set our hope on this fully unless we do it corporately. We need the church. With all of its brokenness and issues and struggles, we need one another. That's what the writer of Hebrews was getting at when he says, don't forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. It's easy to not want to assemble with people that you may not get along with, that you may have differences with. But he says, assemble anyways and let us encourage one another 
all the more as you see the day approaching. Again, you keep seeing that waiting, setting our hope on that salvation to come. So that's the first point you see in 25 and 26. Is your hope set fully? What's distracting you from the hope? Do you have friends that you can encourage one another over these issues? So it's the first thing, setting our hope fully. But, but notice also, it's marveling over the gift of salvation. I'm marveling over this gift. Uh, look with me at uh, 27 to 33. And he came in the spirit to the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed him and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. So think about this now. Three times it's said that he has the spirit. And in the spirit, he comes into the temple. And he comes into the temple, surprise, at the same time that Joseph and Mary do with, with the baby Jesus. Now listen, the fact that he is filled with the spirit is indicating to us that it wasn't happenstance. It's like, hey, what are you doing here? I'm surprised to see you. You know, it's divine providence that he's bringing Simeon as a means to confirm to Mary and Joseph, this child is the Messiah. It's to confirm to people, God is receiving his own son by filling Simeon with the spirit. And notice what Simeon does. He takes a child in his arms. Can you imagine? He takes the child in his arms. He says, now, today, right now, before the baby's done anything, he's a plumpy little baby at this point, before the baby's done anything, now your servant can depart in peace. That word depart is a, is a military term. It's after a long watch at night, guarding the base, you're now dismissed. You can take your rest. That's what he's saying. Now I can depart in peace. Now I can die. I, I'm fine to die. That's what he's saying here. I'm, I'm all good with death. I have a peace with God, which gives me a peace with death. Can you imagine holding this child? I mean, looking down, my eyes have seen your salvation. Uh, so Simeon, being a godly man, understood the purposes of thousands, you know, thousands of sacrifices over years, sacrifice so that people could approach God. That whole Old Testament sacrificial service, you know, always the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins, and now he's holding a baby in his arms that, that is going to just eclipse all of that. All of it was pointing to him, but he's better than all of that. They had to be sacrificed year after year, but no, this child will be one time, and we'll be right. Can you imagine? And this is not something, this isn't some wish fulfillment. Notice he says God prepared this salvation for us. This salvation is of God. Salvation has not been developed by men trying to figure out how to make up what to do with their guilt. It's not some projection that we need to make sense of this life, as philosophers will tell us. No, salvation has come from above. It's God knowing what our problem is. We're not smart enough. We're spiritually blind. We don't know that we need such help. Only God knows that. That's why he had to prepare it. We didn't prepare it. We can't prepare ourselves for salvation. You can't climb up that, you know, that moral ladder and somehow achieve a place where God says, hey, you really did cross the line in enough time. Come on in. No, God's prepared it. So, so, so you see Simeon here, he's marveling over a child 
who will grow up and make peace with him such that now death has lost its sting in Simeon's mind. But he's not just marveling over his own salvation. He's marveling over the extent of it to the nations. Notice it's, just, it's not just for Israel. It's for all the nations. He will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. That means he's going to bring light. He's going to bring understanding in revealing God. Hey, these Gentiles, that Greek word goyim, just means the nations. That's all. It's all of us. And, and he's going to bring the... Now remember, Israel alone had been given the covenants. Israel had been given the word. Israel had been given the experiences with God. All the Gentiles were in darkness. They had man-made religions. They had religions that were dark. They were filthy. They're just trying to somehow relate to this universe that they're placed within. They had no knowledge of God's mercy, no knowledge of his favor, no knowledge of his kindness, no knowledge of his tender mercy. This child would be the one to declare it to him. I mean, this is incredible. I mean, think about the ministry of Jesus. He, he goes to the Syrophoenician woman. He goes to the Roman centurions. He goes to the prostitutes. He goes to the tax collectors. He goes to the women. He goes to the children. He goes to the leper. I, I mean, he goes to the nations, not just Jew-Gentile, but on social classes, those who live on different economic levels. He goes to all of them. This is a salvation for all. You know, if you read in Isaiah 42 and 49, 50, 53, these are the servant songs. They're the songs of a servant who will come from God, who will save. And we read in Isaiah 49, 6, he says, I'll make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. I, I think this is why the parents are marveling. See, some scholars want to say, ah, that, that's a clear mistake in the scriptures. They shouldn't be marveling. I mean, they had already heard that you know, the shepherds had already told the mother and father. Remember now, this, this song in Simeon is 40 days after the birth of Jesus. So Mary and Joseph were already heard what the shepherds heard from the angels. Uh, both Joseph had spoken to an angel, and an angel approached Mary, so they were already well informed about Jesus. So why are they marveling now? Well, they're marveling now, at least a minimum, just that they ran into Simeon and God has shown his favor to them in further confirmation, but I think they're marveling because of the nature and the extent of the salvation. The other two songs by Mary and Zechariah, they kind of have a Jewish flavoring to them. This one is to the nations. God wants to save the nations, all peoples. This is why they're marveling. Do you marvel over this idea? Do you marvel over God bringing forth, preparing a body for Jesus that he would come among us to live and die? I mean, think about Simeon for a minute. He's only looking at a baby. I mean, there's nothing, there's no halo around the baby's head identifying him that he's the one, like all the pictures give us. There are no, notice what it says. He says that you can depart, he can depart in peace according to your word. So Simeon was trusting in the word of God that he would save. The baby was just really the confirmation of it. He trusted in God's word marveling over this child, marveling over this child bringing forth to bear a salvation that he would not yet experience. Simeon would be long dead before Jesus ever made a move of any sort of messianic declaration. He would have been dead. But he is trusting in this unfulfilled salvation that was coming because of the word of God. You know, it's hard to marvel if we feel self-sufficient. It's hard to marvel if we feel 
you know, yeah, I've got things in order. It's hard to marvel if we're, if we're full of pride. People don't marvel. They marvel over themselves or they marvel over their accomplishments. But those who marvel are usually the humble. They're the broken. They're the ones who need it. They recognize they don't have it in us. And, and this is why humility is the gatekeeper to salvation. You know, to humble ourselves before God is to recognize our need for this kind of Savior and to appeal to God for the mercy that he gives to us in Christ. That's how we become Christians. That's how we find this peace that Simeon has found. You will have no peace apart from what this Prince of Peace will do. And the faith in God providing this Prince of Peace is what brings us into the faith. It's not coming to church. It's not even adopting many of the Christian principles. It's faith in this Jesus. So do we marvel over him? But do you marvel over the fruit, by the way? Do you notice the fruit of what this, this baby has done? Simeon has a peace. Forgiveness of sins. Pardon for our iniquity. The anger of God removed. A peace, that strife that we have with God, the guilt, that sense of dissonance with God removed. There's a peace that he feels. He can die. Are, you, are we ready to die? I mean, are we ready to, yeah, everybody, we're all one call away. We're just one phone call away from disaster. Are we ready for that? Can we handle with peace no matter what stands before us? Well, you could if you knew that a sovereign God had brought a Savior and that not one hair of my head will fall apart from the will of God. That's a piece. You know, there was a, an art contest a number of years ago, and I forget where it was. Uh, but, but the object winning the prize would be a painting that displayed peace best. And the two competing for the first, out of all the paintings, two were chosen. And the one painting was this beautiful lake this serene lake set in these tall, lonely mountains. Just kind of a, a picture of peace. The other painting was of a waterfall. This waterfall, just huge amounts of water cascading over the edge. And, and in the painting, though, there was this branch that came out above the water, where all the steam and, the, and, and all the water rising in the mist, and there's a little robin sitting on that branch fully at peace that's the peace we're talking about a peace in the midst of the turbulence of a waterfall we are still at peace because not one hair on my head can fall apart from the will of him who achieves and purposes all things this is what jesus christ has come to bring not just to get you into heaven no, he's come to bring a peace in this life, in the midst of the wilderness. Not just taking us out of the wilderness, meeting us in the wilderness. That's why he took on flesh and dwelt among us. And then this is the peace we want to declare. You know, do we marvel over one who wants to save all peoples? The peoples that we may not like. He, he, I, I, Carol and I were talking about this. I can't believe that he would do this for me. A broken individual like my own like myself and all of us. He wants to save the nations. I mean, now, now this is where we get in a little bit of trouble with Jesus. He's come to save the nations. He is the Savior 
of the world. Now, most people don't mind if we have a representative of every world religion up there and they all have their place at the table. In the first century, Jesus wasn't a problem if he found his place in the niche along with the other gods that were worshipped. We're okay with that, Jesus. But that's not the one we're hearing about. We're hearing about a Savior over all gods, the only Savior. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. He's the only one. And this is where we get into trouble. Because now we're saying that the other gods are not really gods. And they're not. You know, this bothers people. And I understand in, in, a, in a desire just to be, if plurality is, is my ultimate goal, then it would definitely create a rocking of that world. But what he says is he's the savior for all the nations. That's us. I mean, we are testimony. We are of the nations, and now we believe. Do we marvel over his love for the nations? Do we have the same love for the nations? I pray we do. You know, um, I asked Mark, a um, new pastor, to preach. He's going to preach on January 1. He's a good preacher. He has a love for the nations. He's served overseas. I want us to have a love for the nations. He's going to preach on that the first week, first Sunday of this year. God, give us a love for the nations so we don't get so embroiled kind of with our own navel gazing, but that we look out and that we see the glory of God as people are coming to hear. Remember, he is to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. So the church, we, Gentiles who have been brought in, are now to go out. And so he's going to lead us in that. And I'm excited about that. He has a, a strong heart for the nation. So you see that to wait well, we have to set our hope on the coming salvation. To what degree is your eye setting your hope on the fullness of the revelation to come? And then secondly, we want to marvel over the child of salvation. But thirdly, we wait well to consider the judgment of salvation. This is a darker side of Christmas. Look with me at 34 and 35, because they don't marvel. They move from marveling. And in 34 and 35, he says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Okay, can you imagine what's happened now, Mary? He speaks now to Mary. They're not marveling. Now, Simeon prophesies again to her, and he says, this child, this child that's going to bring about a peace, who's going to remove all death, fear of death. He's going to remove the fear of death. You know, George Herbert was a great English poet in the 17th century, and he said, um, he says, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. You don't bury a Christian, you plant him. One day to arise in perfect physical glory. He's removed from us the fear of death, but notice what he says to Mary, because it's in the context of us. He's going to be appointed for the fall of many and for many to rise. Now, some people think this is the same group. You know, those who fall down in humility will rise in salvation. Uh, most, though, would see this being two groups. That when Jesus comes in his ministry, there will be many who object and reject and turn aside from him and give him no honor. And there will be those who will rise 
by faith coming to him. Uh, most think this is probably the right interpretation because you see right in Jesus' ministry, he was a bit of a divider. He was a separator of peoples. He was like a spiritual continental divide. We're separating those who love and rejoice in his coming and those who don't, who reject and want his end. This is what we see here. I think that's what he means when he says that he's to be a sign uh, to reveal the hearts. In other words, we're going to know in our own heart what we think about him. And there will be the evidence of, are we for him or are we against him? Do we love him and cling to him as the only hope that we have? Or do we look at him with ambivalence or perhaps antagonism? You know, that, that's, you have to look at your own heart. You know, I, I don't know where people stand with God. I don't always know. I, I can be easily fooled as to where a person is in their faith. I'm very tentative to speak to that. But you know, based upon your own thoughts and your, what do you think of Christ? Are you drawn to him by faith with joy, needing him to live? Or do you, are, are you, Troubled by many of the things he says and maybe like his kindness, but don't like a lot of the things in the positions that he holds. Or maybe you see him as a good teacher, benevolent, kind. You'd like him as a friend, but you don't see him as the singular savior of the entire universe. Now, Jesus is going to be this kind of rock, if you will. You know, the, the stone, a stone that you could trip over and be crushed by. Or a stone that you can build up into a fortress and find refuge in. He's going to be one or the other. So Peter says, says, Come to him, a living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God. See, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. Is he precious to you? Do you marvel over him? Now, for those who do not believe, Peter says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Same thing. You see him drawing out of the Old Testament here. He's a divider. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Paul sees himself now as a preacher. And in his words, people are being divided. And that's why Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? Who, who can do this but only God? You know, it, it's, it's, it's this kind of separation is why we suffer. In every generation, those who have followed have been less than those who, that who reject. This is why Christians don't want to have suffering. But, but, but those who reject Jesus are going to reject those who love Jesus, right? He says, those who hate me will hate you also because you're my servant. This is why the suffering will come. Uh, because we follow the one who was also rejected. Why, though? Why is there such antagonism towards Christ? Why, why would people be so at odds with him? Well, because of what he preaches. 
I mean, I, I mean he, he says a cross is necessary to salvation. This is, this is what I think explains these words in the parentheses. If you look back at the text, you see Luke kind of add this in the middle. And he says, a sword will pierce your soul also. So he says this to Mary. He says, listen, uh, your soul, you will suffer over the ministry of this child. And not only will you suffer because they'll reject your son, and no parent wants their son rejected, but it speaks more to, than just this rejection of his ministry. It speaks to the, it speaks to the sorrow that comes upon a mother who would understand that our healing will come through his death. Our, our exoneration will come from his punishment. Our forgiveness will come from his condemnation. Our life will come from his death. That's the sorrow of a mother, only a mother. I know fathers have sorrow too. Mothers seem to have that unique, having carried the child, it will pierce your soul. His, the peace that he will bring will be by the conflict that he endures. That our road of comfort will lead him through a valley of death. I think that's what we're getting at. A valley of death. You know, there's an old painting, <clears throat> a German artist, a Bodenhausen, uh, born in the late 19th century, died mid-20th century, but he painted a painting in about 1910. It was called the Bodenhausen Madonna. It's a, a picture of Mary. And Mary is young, obviously, and her hair is flowing, and the clouds are set behind her. And she has a child to. She has a child pressed firmly against her, her chest. And, and the clouds are dark, but there's a light, and there's a light streaming. And if you look to the lower right hand corner, you, you see these three crosses. It's trying to put into picture what we have here in the text, that a sword will pierce her soul as well. And this is the nature of our salvation. It comes through the death of a son. Do you believe this? Do you marvel over him? Do you, do you, do you find him precious? You know, what Simeon didn't tell Mary, but what we know is that he was raised. And, and, and she knew that. That, that her sorrow did become joy. And, and that's really the paradigm for us, remembering in this Christmas season when we're waiting in the wilderness, our sorrow will be joy. I mean, there is beauty that comes out of ashes. The, the joy comes and gladness comes in the morning. A, a night of darkness leads to the morning. That is the Christian way. The Christian way is that we will suffer, but it will lead to glory. This life is not our best life but it's leading to our best life. And, and so when, when you think about this Christmas season, be mindful that the temporal pleasure and parties and all that, it's going to give way to we still live in a wilderness and we're going to be waiting. And how do we wait well? We want to wait well like Simeon. We want to wait well with our hopes set firmly in the salvation to come. We want to wait well, spending our time marveling and considering and speaking about the preciousness of the Son. And we want to wait well, knowing that the salvation that we enjoy, it will come through a judgment. But friends, for those of you who are Christian, the judgment, the, the salvation that you marvel over will come through the judgment of God on the Son, which makes him more precious to us. I just would encourage anybody here, if you're, 
If you're investigating the Christian faith, you, you don't understand it all. Maybe you're interested. Come forward, speak to us about it. I, I mean, it is. You see, this story takes the sentimentality out of Christmas. It, it removes the syrupy kind of look at Christmas. You see that dark shadow that had to come upon Christ to give us the celebration that we have. I would encourage you to consider Christ and to come to him, as Peter says. Come to him, a living stone, chosen by God, but rejected by men. Come to him. Let's take a moment now and ask God to bring forth. If God is the creator of all things, then he surely has the power by his spirit to bring the truth of this to our souls. Let's ask him for that now silently, and then I'll pray for us in a moment.